Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Digital Audio Health by... Cymatrax. Welcome to the Rhonda Grant Show with your host, Rhonda Grant. If you believe that there is more to life than what you see right now and you want to find out more, listen in as her guests share their journey and their extraordinary experiences. Now, here is your host, Rhonda Grant. Welcome to the Rhonda Grant Show. Sometimes the universe has a way of placing people or obstacles in your path to help guide and direct you on your mission. Listen in as we discover the path my guest has traveled. Has she been inspired by a calling, crafted her journey, or a bit of both? I invite you to embrace the conversation and to use it to help you to recognize if this is happening in your life. Our guest today is Susan K. Younger, relationship architect, who has a unique background in architecture, retail management, massage therapy, consulting, and personality science with high tech and high touch. Her focus is to create space in life physically, mentally, and spiritually to be comfortable with ourselves and how we interact with others. Since 2015, she has worked with BANK, Personality Profiling, Methodology, and Codebreakers Technologies, A1 Tools, Technology Training, and coaching programs. Susan sees simple conversation as a game changer. When you understand the values of who you're talking to and use those values to frame your conversation, you can address situations and people you may have had a hard time engaging with otherwise. Working with Susan, servant leaders who have been cracked open by life find respectful conversations, unlock tough topics to move business and life forward with ease and grace, empowering success. Welcome to the Rhonda Grant Show, Susan. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you today, Rhonda. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Take us back to um, your earlier days when uh, you were attending university. What did you go to university to study? I'm one of those rare persons, people, whatever you want to call me, who knew what I wanted to do very early in life. And I knew I wanted to study architecture. And as a young girl growing up in the Midwest, and this would have been in the 60s, for a girl to say she wanted to become an architect, there were many people who says, and what's your backup? What's your second choice? because they weren't used to having girls say they wanted to do something like that. On the other hand, I was blessed with parents who said, well, if you want to do that, let's figure out how. So by the time I was a junior in high school, I had already been accepted to the only state college in Iowa that offered architecture. And mom and dad moved from a small town to a farm which meant I was switching school districts and where I thought I was going to be able to do prep work for college by doing a mechanical drawing course or something. The smaller district where I was going to be one of 49 graduating from high school in two years didn't offer that for women. And again, my parents were very supportive and they said, go ask the shop teacher. Maybe he will let you do it in your study hall. So I always was encouraged to do what was right for me, not was, not what was normal for others. So I got a degree in architecture, but I knew I didn't want to do a building shell. I really was interested in doing the interior spaces that people lived in. And so I was frequently the only girl in a class. There were five women getting a degree out of 90. 
in, in the architecture program that were graduating the same time I did. So we seldom were together with other women. And if we were someplace and I was dressed up, sometimes the guys would go, hang younger, you got legs. And it'd be like, oh yeah, I found them in the back of the closet this morning. You joked around with them. You were one of the boys. You really were one of the boys. And I think the advantage that gave me in life is it allowed me to know not to doubt myself, despite the fact that I wasn't anything close to being what the rest of them were, were thinking I should do or would do. Because I was a shy child who my mom had had to encourage to step forward and talk to people. She says, you're tall, shy, and smart. People will take that for arrogant. If you don't reach out to them, they will think you are stuck up. It's going to require you to step outside the boundaries of what you're comfortable with. And to be blessed with a mom that gave me that guidance and a dad who, from a business perspective, said, if you want to try something, go for it. I never once was told I could not attempt to have the dreams and goals that I wanted. And when I look back at it and talk to other women, it's amazing how just blessed I was. Mm-hmm. And of course, you wouldn't have really known that at the time. No, but that was my normal. That was your normal because um, a lot of women uh, would have been discouraged to uh, take on that challenge. Yeah. But my mom was somebody who broke horses with her grandfather, who raced motorcycles and would hand the trophy off to somebody else because she had snuck off to ride the motorcycle with a boyfriend and she wasn't supposed to be on the bikes, you know. So she was a risk taker and she encouraged me to be a risk taker. And at the same time, she could turn to me and say, you are so different than me. Had I not been there for your birth, I wouldn't know you were my daughter. You know, we could giggle about that. We could, we could exchange the differences between us and talk about how unique each of us was, but still love each other for that instead of looking at it as uh, odd. You know, it was curious. It wasn't odd. <laughs> mm-hmm. What a gift. Um, what a gift she gave you and what and she had such a great philosophy of life and yeah. uh, helping with your direction. Did she get that from her dad? No. On the contrary, she uh, basically was raised by her grandparents. Her mother had run away when she was four. She and an identical twin were born in 29. So they had a very tough start. And although her dad was around, she didn't like her dad. It was his brothers and his sisters that were more like parents to her than her dad was. And I honestly, I think I was a teenager before I figured out that Uncle Chris was actually Grandpa Chris, because there was not a connection there. She had been very much connected to her sister and they had felt they had to figure out a lot of life on their own. They had grown up on a on a farm next to Boys Town in Omaha. So they had been introduced to a lot of kids who were orphans and had had difficult starts. They uh, had each other to count on, but they didn't really feel they had a lot else in life to count on. So they had they've been scrappy girls who figured things out. They had fun, you know, they because they were identical twins, they swapped dates at at a movie or so, you know, so she was a risk taker and some of that came through and dad had been in World War II and was injured and they met roller skating. So uh, just a whole bunch of things and dad had lost his family early. So I think a lot for them was the fact that they wanted my brother and I to have the life they never had as kids. Mm-hmm. And therefore they gave us the love and support they both really hoped they would have received. And that's a blessing that they did not take what was uncomfortable for them and make it ugly for us. Oh, beautifully said, Susan, because it can go that other way. Yes. Yes. What a blessing. So when you left architecture school, where were you headed? I had in architecture school been looking and you got to realize this is long before the computer was up and, and yes. we just have easy ways to to find things out. So I was looking at all the architectural and design journals. 
And at the time, there was a lot of exciting things happening in Texas, where firms were no longer just calling themselves an architecture firm. They were, they were talking about interior architecture, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. So when I graduated, I took part of the summer off and just hung out with family, gardening and stuff. But later in the summer, went down to Texas and stayed with a friend who had a job working for a mobile home company. He was drawing up plans for them. Not exciting, but it was work. And this was the mid 70s. So I hit Dallas. I jokingly say I hit Dallas the same time the embargo did. Maybe not exactly, but it meant that the firms that had been growing were all of a sudden starting to implode. I spent a month between Dallas and Houston looking for work. And most of them were saying, sorry, we're laying off. I had to go back to a firm that I had done an internship with and ask them if they would allow me to work part-time since they had already hired somebody full-time. They had offered me a job, but my dream for something different had sent me in a direction that imploded on me. Mm. And I think in some ways, having that happen to me in the mid seventies has made it easier for me as we've seen, seen things go up and down 2008, you know, again, soon with the pandemic in 20. And just every time all these things turn around and people are like, oh my gosh, the sky is falling. To me, it's like, it's fallen before and we'll figure out how to get through it. Mm -hmm. That firm hired me, let me work with them for three years. And about the time I was applying for graduate school, one of the firms in Dallas reached out to me and I corresponded with a gentleman for six months. You know, you'd write letters back and forth. He says, if you're going to be in Dallas, stop in an interview. And at a certain point, I thought my friend no longer lives there. He's working someplace else. And I don't have any reason to go. So I wrote him a very polite thank you, but no thank you letter. I said, I am looking for an opportunity to take the skills I've learned over the last three years and turn them into a career, not just a job. I'm applying to graduate school. So that's an opportunity and a direction I might explore. Unless you have something that would take what I've got and allow me to build it into something, thank you, but no thank you. And I really thought that was the end of it. A week later, there was a full color brochure on that company in the mail with a letter from him that says, I grew up 30 miles from where you live. I'm going to come home and visit family. I will interview you in Iowa. Nice. He came, interviewed me, and offered me a job. One of those things that I think is difficult now for people is because so much of what is done with the uh, online application, check the box, fill in this line, there is no opportunity to have a real conversation about what makes you unique and what brings you to that position where you are a true contributor. Yes. Have a uniqueness that stands out. He literally told me he remembered me because he knew I was from the Midwest where he grew up. He felt that that gave me a stable kind of a mindset that he could count on within his team. And he couldn't remember my name, but he says, how many women come to interview with us? I told my admin assistant, go in that file drawer where we keep the resumes. There's going to be a girl from Iowa. Pull up her resume and contact her. Three years later, that's how long it took for him to reach out to me. And it was over six months before I actually was offered a job and another two months before I moved to Texas. So you, you know, you keep thinking something has gone wrong and it might be just that it was not the right time. It yes. wasn't that it was wrong. It wasn't that you were wrong. It was not the moment that was right. And we get distracted by the incidentals of what happened instead of the reality of who we are and what we can do and what might come along, what experience I gained working with that small firm. I sat in the room with the three principal architects. If they were talking about how they needed to grow business or what was going wrong on a project, 
I got to hear it all at that point with those three. So I was very much aware of what it really took to, to do their architectural firm. Yes, if they had something they needed to do behind closed doors, they went to the conference room and you know walked away. But otherwise, as they were drawing and I was drawing, we were all sitting there together and you'd hear, you know, here's what's happening on this job. You got any ideas for it? You really got a, an understanding of how important it was to build the relationships early within your, within your team. And as I progressed in the business, the gentleman that brought me to Texas later moved on with two other people and started his own firm. They uh, one day called me and said, we know of an opportunity in Arizona. We'd like to offer you up as a candidate. And I thought, I'm not moving to Arizona. I don't know what's going on there. Uh, but a free ticket, I'll go interview. And I was offered the job. And I came back and really was at that point, you know, we talk about this imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. I was 27, maybe at that point, And had to literally walk in and say, I've been offered a job to be the store planner for a department store. It was spinning off from a larger division, and I was actually being handed the directorship of store planning. Now, I was going to be directing just me, so I was embarrassed to call it a title, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. but I had to pull together a team. I had to really figure out how I was going to do this, and I could have looked at it and said, I'm not skilled enough to do this, or I could look at it and say, this is an adventure and I have the support of people who have mentored me, excuse mm -hmm. me, mentored me in the past and are willing to mentor me in the future. If I continue to respect that relationship with them, I can build what I'm hoping will turn into a great career. So for 12 years, I led the store planning department. Turned out the six months after I'd started that job, they announced we were expanding into Colorado and we had four stores on the docket to build. Wow. Three of which got built. The fourth one never did because the whole shale oil thing went south in the mid 80s. Again, ups and downs in business, you know, successes, stores opening early, stores opening on budget, two of them opening at the same time. There's a lot of people who had years of business that never had that kind of an opportunity to build that type of success. So I um, understood how just fortunate I was to have um, the opportunity to get to know people and in the new company because everybody had come in from someplace else as they started this new division up. It really became about asking the questions, being open to hear what they needed to make their job within the company positive in its relationship to what I was doing, building new stores, remodeling existing stores, and making it a team effort where we were all working for the success of all of us. That sort of camaraderie, that sort of uh, willingness to be open about what was or wasn't working was such a powerful learning. I really recognized how blessed I was at every single step along the way. Mm -hmm. It was such a big position. It just seemed like it grew very big while you were there. It, it, I'm the telling you, did, nobody you could have told me that it was going to turn into what it did. No. Uh -uh. Well, you made it a success. I mean, it's incredible because I we're hearing your words. But the thing is, is that I'm just imagining a young woman in your late 20s with that amount of responsibility and you were reporting to people, but a lot of people were reporting to you. And there's there would have been a lot of moving parts that had to be taken care of. The, the really interesting thing is they paired me with a construction manager out of L.A., out of the corporate office on the stores for Denver. And, and Tony was one of those men who spoke with his hands. You know, he was truly that Sicilian screaming person that so many people said, I just can't work with him. And I recognized you needed to let him vent. And once he had vented, you could say, I appreciate your viewpoint, 
Let me tell you what I know about what we can do and what we can't do. And then he could hear it. But until I let him vent, it was no use to argue with him. And uh, we, we ended up having a great team. He would tell the contractors, you cannot ask Susan information until you've vetted me to say that I'm okaying the fact that you're going to her for an answer. So when we were doing the stores in Denver, again, this was the 80s. There were no cell phones. There were no you know, laptop mm-hmm. computers. You were running through the store trying to find people to, to have the conversation. <laughs> Such and waste I, of time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Lordy. And I'd be running up a escalator that wasn't working yet. And the contractor would be coming across the floor and he'd say, I'm on my way to ask Tony if I can ask you a question. May I have the answer now? And we would both giggle and laugh because we understood he still needed to respect what Tony saw as his position of being in control of construction. But he also had to respect the fact that because I was in charge of how the concept had come together and what those smaller pieces were that Tony wasn't as related to, Mm-hmm. That he could get that information from me without it being something that made Tony wrong or, or you know, a bully for saying he needed to know. Because he needed to be able to understand if there was a change being made, why, how it was all going to fit together to make us still hit the timeline, still hit the budget. And I learned a lot from Tony because he would explain things to me again he mentored me on what that job really took to do. I, if, I, I know you haven't mentioned anything, but I now work with bank code personality assessment. Yes. And the blueprint side of that, that one that is called blueprint, is all about being responsible, taking on those responsibilities, understanding your duties and the credentials and the titles and such that made something the right way to do it, to minimize risk. Tony was about that minimizing risk. He was also about that knowledge side of knowing how it had to happen in order to have that risk minimalized. I, from the other side, was about nurturing the team, making sure we had fun doing it, getting to the bottom line fast enough to make it happen. Somebody could tell me they needed a report and I would say to that boss, I can get you the report or I can get these two stores open on time and on budget. Which would you rather have? Wonderful. would laugh and go, (laughs) okay, younger, I get it. You, you know, I said, you know, John, the time it's going to take me to write this report for you. I'll have the store open in two weeks. Could I just hand it to you later? And it was not making me wrong for not approaching it the way he would have ideally liked to do it, but for me to explain to him why what I wanted to do was different than what he was asking. Mm-hmm. So when I was introduced to bank code later on, it was that simple answer to what I had been working with intuitively and could not explain to others. Right. And can you go through the acronym and let the audience know what B-A-N-K represents? Yes. So B stands for blueprint. And when you think of blueprint, you think of it's a system. It's a drawing that gives you a clue how to put something together in a specific order that you know you can trust. It's not going to fail because it's all been tested and vetted. Action. Now, that when you think of action, you think of that red hot, ready to go. I want to be in front of the room. It's all about me. I'm sorry, I just talked about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think about me? You know, that person who is really all about the cool, being cool, being the image and fun. They are loving winning, but they want to get to the line. They don't want you to bore them with details. Most of those people are like, chop, chop. Let's make this happen fast. Then there's nurturing. These are the people with heart of gold. So the card is a golden color. But it's all about that base of a relationship, how you connect to somebody authentically. You are real with them. If you are meeting with a person who's relationship-based, you want to look them in the eyes. They want to really know what's happening in your soul. If you're having a bad day, they want to know it because they care about you. We frequently say nurturing people, their currency is other people. Uh, They will frequently take care of the people 
around them before they take care of themselves. And they have a hard time a lot of times asking for money for themselves and no problem asking for money for a charity or cause because they are more about serving others than they are about making money. So that whole piece of harmony, ethics and contribution plays, plays very strongly for nurturing, which sometimes can confuse people because a blueprint can be about that from the point of that's the law, that's the way we've always done it. Mm -hmm. And the nurturing is about this serves that community from a different angle. Then the knowledge, we use the color green because frequently we say these people are green with envy. They may be the smartest person in the room, but they are also the person who does not shout about themselves. They would rather see what they have created be the winning formula. And frequently it's the action person who's standing at the front of the room talking about this successful launch of something that the knowledge created. And when you think of these intelligent, smart, smart people, these are people who, when it comes to making a decision, we say it takes forever to sell for them because they vet the information and make that decision for themselves. When you see those people getting into paralysis analysis, that's frequently that knowledge person looking for, well, what about this? Is there another option? Did I miss something? They are very much into all the details and they can see a project from A to Z and spot the holes in something that somebody else thinks is a solid process. They are looking at the big picture. They're frequently involved in science and the technology and such. But a lot of times people will think, oh, well, this can't be a knowledge person because they're not into the tech, but they're seriously into the getting a master's degree, working on you know, multiple, multiple college degrees. And when you put a code in place of all four of those, we all have all four of them, but we order it sequentially different. So for me, it's nurturing. I care about the community I'm working with and the project and how it serves the people around me. Mm -hmm. I still need to have fun doing it. And I want to get it done fast and I can get bored. Or other of my nurturing friends can talk for friggin' ever about something. <laughs> I reach a point where I'm like, chop, chop, I'm done. Let's go. Yeah. And then my knowledge kicks in. If you have me asking 20 questions, you know I'm not trusting intuitively that I've been able to see the real piece that I need to see. So I jokingly say the blueprint for me is across the room because I've vetted it through my knowledge, action, and nurture together to make sure that the process works, to make sure that the system works. So I am less about doing it exactly the same way. When people say they need something scripted, when people say they need a checklist, I'm like, mm, I'll check, I'll check the list after I've completed it. I'm not so much checking it while I'm doing it. And that can get me in trouble. So that's where I need those people around me who will do a much better job of going chop, chop, didn't check this. The funny thing is because I built stores on budget and on time. Yes. I managed to do that sometimes with a very small staff, but two people at this you know, two jobs opening on the same day wasn't typical back in the 80s. But yet mm -hmm. I was, people figured my blueprint must be higher. And I said, no, it's I was serving the project to make sure those things were done. I wasn't doing the, the checklist and budget to make sure they were done. That was an ancillary piece for me, not the primary. And you start to understand when somebody's about the process more than the people. You see sometimes when somebody says, well, they didn't respect me. And you have to understand that it's not that they didn't respect you, but their process for respect comes at it from a different approach. Mm -hmm. And when we start to understand their different approach, we can talk to them in a way that we wouldn't talk to ourselves. Yes. And, you know, as you're telling us about all of the skills, you know, these are things that I feel should be taught even in high schools, because everybody wants to fit in and be like everybody else. And they don't really have an appreciation for other people who are different or think things differently. They go, you know, did you hear what she said or whatever? Because they don't understand it because they, they only have their own skill set. And that's where they're projecting their whole life 
and that this causes problems. Yeah. Can you speak to that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, one of the things in some of the trainings, couples will come together and he might be a knowledge and she's the nurturing and she says, he never tells me I love you. And he says, I married you. If that, if my feelings towards you change, I'll let you know. To him, the fact that he's still there is a sign of his love. You know, she needed the accountability to come from him on a more regular basis. I know couples who, once they start to understand this, the knowledge guy puts notes in his phone that come up on his phone some point during the day to remind him to call his wife or send her a text or, you know, buy her flowers on occasion, something that he like, oh, I need to know to do this for her. And she has learned to say, I can't push him when I ask him a question and he's thinking that's not disrespectful for me. He's trying to process the question Mm -hmm. and I have to give him the space. I have to step away and not let it anchor me, but understand he's doing his best to process what I've asked. Mm -hmm. And when he comes back a day later with his answer and I'm like going, what the heck are you doing now? Yeah. I need to respect the fact that it took him that amount of time to process what I asked for. We, we really start to, when you understand these things about other people, And what I love is these being such simple terms that it's not rocket science to unpack. It becomes almost impossible not to put this into play daily. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden, snap, you've got it all. But it certainly helps you to unpack those times when something starts to go wrong and you can see that the wrong isn't all somebody else's. Mm -hmm. The wrong is as much yours for not seeing them is theirs for not seeing you. And when you can help to unpack that, you can shortcut what may have been a very, very long-term disgruntled conversation because you couldn't back away from it. But if you can step away and say, I'm sorry, I was looking at it from my point of view. Could you explain it to me? Let me reframe it to see if I'm hearing what you're saying. Mm-hmm. So if I'm talking to a blueprint about something, I want to talk about how am I minimizing risk for them to make a change in their life. If I'm asking them to do something different, they need to know why that activity or choice is less risky than staying with what they're currently doing. You you really need to with an action, make it something fun. Show them that they're going to be the rock star in the room for stepping forward and doing something that to them is like, not not my coolness. But yet, if you can show them that people will give them a level of respect and they will shine because they did something different, that it, it can be amazing. Mm-hmm. It's such vital information. And I mean, you touched on something there. It's even with your relationship, even with relationships between husbands and wives. I mean, yeah. it's our differences that we are together. And in fact, it's the differences that can actually pull people apart. And yep. when we start, if we learned what you're teaching, everybody's life would be just so much easier. <laughs> and think about it then with the kids yes about a family where the husband and wife are into you know lots of activities they like to play sports they like to climb mountains jump out of airplanes and their son or daughter is knowledge who wants to get lost in a book study and doesn't want to do any of those things and the kid starts to feel like i'm i'm not part of this family but the family Mm -hmm. hasn't figured out how to make the kids interests of importance to them. Maybe they need to go to a museum with the child. Maybe they need to go to the library and let let the child show them something that they have accomplished with a science project or something that really speaks to the child's interest. And in a way, that's exactly what my mother had done with me. You know, she was a horsewoman. She was somebody who was always about doing things that were fun for her. And here I was, I was happy to draw and sit and be quiet. And instead of her making me wrong for doing that, we could talk about how different we were, but what made each of us happy. Mm -hmm. So 
So without having this system, I was blessed with parents that treated me in a sense with this system unknowing me. Mm-hmm. For me to now be able to share with others, there was a family where the husband wife were action. So was the daughter and the son was blueprint. They would say to their son, tomorrow, your soccer game is at whatever time we're going to leave the house at four. But at four, the seven-year-old son is sitting there. His gear has been packed for a day. Everything was perfectly folded, neatly gathered, ready to go. And the rest of the family is still going, where are my shoes? Oh, wait, I got one more thing to do before we leave. If they were out the door at 4.15 or 4.30, they were still doing good. One day, the young boy said, Daddy, why do you lie to me? Mm. And the father was at that point studying this bank philosophy. And all of a sudden, he realized he was lying to him. He says, you say we're going to leave at four, but we never leave at four. It was, it was undercutting the child's ability to trust any adult. He ah. wasn't doing well in school. He wasn't doing well at home because nobody followed the rules of what they told him they were going to do. Ah. The family started to understand they needed to really meet those time frames when they told him they were going to leave, that they were going to do things the way they had promised him they were going to do things. And soon after getting those things in place, the boy said to his dad, dad, I love you. His Mm -hmm. grades started to improve. And these were a family where both husband and wife were very entrepreneurial. By the age of 12, the young son had started his own LinkedIn profile and his own business making sweatshirts and stuff. Yes. Getting things printed with a logo on them or something. He had blossomed because he felt seen, heard, and respected because the boundaries had been met that he had been told would be the rules for life. Right. Critical information you're sharing here, Susan. It's just wonderful. You're listening to the Rhonda Grant Show right now, whose podcast has been treated with Digital Audio Health by my sponsor, Cymatrax. And today we are speaking with Susan Younger. Let the audience know how they may reach out to you, Susan. Easiest way is to just send me an email. It's Susan, S U S A N, at S K Younger, Y O U N G E R dot com. So my initials are S K Y for Sky. Uh, so it may look like Sky Younger, but it's Susan K Younger. Yes. And you're also on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. You'll always see it with that middle initial K. That was a real easy way to say Susan K. Younger sets me apart from any other Susan Youngers in the world. Yes. Uh, And it's funny how something as simple as your middle initial, again, I don't know why, maybe it was because with the initials of Sky, I always kind of kept that middle initial in there. Yes. I, I knew I wanted to own my name my entire life. And to be able to say, yes, this is who I am. Yes. And it's an easy thing for people to uh, recognize and Mm -hmm. to associate Sky with you. I mean, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel that you've been called to your journey or that you've crafted it or a bit of both? I have definitely been called to it. um, And at the same time, it has been crafted along the way, you know, having started with architecture and knowing I wanted to do it. And yet I never once, when I thought of architecture, did I think it was going to be department stores I would get involved with. And later on, I realized that what was happening in the retail world, that was not going to be a place to stay forever. And I thought I needed to do something that was more entrepreneurial. I had always found massage an interesting background, but when I was going to college, becoming a massage therapist didn't sound like a lifetime career. Yes. When I got a degree in massage therapy in the late 90s, I was then reaching a point where I was doing freelance architecture and massage therapy. I had two careers, parallel careers, and people would go, how the heck are you seeing that as 
a, a, a good match. And I'm like, I'm creating the environment you live in around you and working with your body. I'm creating the environment you live in your body with. Then mm. so when I was introduced to bank code and code breaker technologies, that's a parent company of that eight years ago. Uh, it was sort of like, uh, crafting the mind side to go with the body and the environment around you and brings back together those simple lessons from life that I had in childhood that didn't sound, you know, when other people would say, I got this business degree and it taught me how to do business. I would say it was the conversations around the dinner table, the, the life conversations with mom and dad, with family, with friends, you know, the dinner with the guy that offered me a job to come to Dallas, the dinners with people I was doing work with, where we would talk about what was happening at work that allowed us to figure out how to approach various things. Those simple conversations are what crafted my life. And I was able to put together the fact that the architecture, the body work, and the mind work with uh, the bank code personalities all comes together beautifully in my own crafted unique way that no one would have ever set out for anyone, but it truly aligns with who I am and who I want to be in life. Mm -hmm. That is such a great teaching that you have talked about Susan, because although my husband and I didn't know it at the time, the conversations around the dinner table, actually shaped our our children's life. We didn't know that. We're both entrepreneurs. We still are. And that's what's happening with our children. And, and I think that parents need to realize or think about how important those dinners are and how it does shape your children. And you might not even know that you're doing it. And that's the best part of it, too, is when you realize and can put the connections together later on. I, in 2013, wrote a book called Simple Living, Simple Food, Life Lessons Learned, Dining with Family and Friends. Yes. And it was, it was really about those life experiences from childhood through adulthood, where I really finally comprehended the fact that it was those simple conversations. We might be sitting on the back stoop, uh, shucking peas or doing something of what we did yeah. from the garden, but my great aunts or my mom and I are in the kitchen canning stuff. We were talking about the life and what was going on. Mom and dad took us on Friday night when they would go out to a supper club. I was an adult before I stopped to think about that was really their date night, but they didn't oh. get a babysitter. They took my brother and I along with them. And, you know, we played on the like shuffleboard thing. That was almost like, like a, 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 bowling alley thing and and I would go step on the steps that went up to the dance floor and pretend like Loretta Young coming out and swinging the doors open and turning you know you would do things and mom and dad would talk about who was misbehaving there at the club that they would see you know I think that person's going to regret what they're doing here tonight tomorrow they would in a sense be sharing those lessons in how you behave in public how you treat others without it being a lecture it was an awareness of what was happening around us and would we want to be seen that way. Never once was I thinking they were telling me how to have a date of my own and be respectful or how to think about, did I want people to see me in that light if I was misbehaving? And yet it was those life lessons that when I did start dating, when I did start going out, I knew what it was to be respectful of others and respectful of myself. Mm hmm. Beautiful. What extraordinary discovery have you found, Susan? To, you don't have to be. You don't have to be extraordinary to take extraordinary risk. Ah. It wasn't that I was the person who stood up and said, I'm going to go do this. But I was the one who when an opportunity was presented, I said, I will go explore this. I can decide to take it or not take it. You know, taking the job in Phoenix was not something that was planned. But when it was offered, it was like, why wouldn't I? Uh, I can remember walking down the street in New York 
it was before the two stores opened in, in Denver. And I was, after a market trip, having an extra day to do some exploring of shops. And I would use these as kind of like a great ways to pour into my own mind and spirit after, you know, kind of crazy, crazy market trips where you were with a lot of people for a lot yes. of things. Yes. And I could go find shops to find things that we were still looking for as a resource or just go see what was exciting and happening in the the streets of New York with retail that I would have never found except by walking. And as I was walking down the street that day, I would have been maybe 31. And all I was thinking was, remember this. Few people get this experience. Be grateful for what you have. It may never happen again. And I don't know why moments like that would show up for me and remind me how blessed I was. But they would, from time to time, remind me that I needed to cherish what it was, despite what might have been crazier than all get out at the same time, because it was a a very taxing schedule we were keeping. Yet I knew that it was the sort of thing that I would cherish the rest of my life. Or the day those two stores opened, I stood outside one and and it was as if I had given birth to uh, not identical twins, but to twins because it was two stores opening miles apart. And it felt like I was giving away my babies. You know, somebody else was mm-hmm. now going to run those stores. And you realize I have accomplished something in this moment. It doesn't make me anything, but I do need to cherish this moment. And anytime you have a success of any size, make sure you cherish it. Mm-hmm. Because it is easy to overlook taking a walk down a street anywhere yeah. and, and just absorbing what's around you and then making a mental note that you didn't want to forget that, that this is important to opening two stores on the same day, which is so monumental in anybody's life. I mean, it's like, well, I mean, people would think that's such a huge mountain, I could never even climb it. But it seems to me that you just took one step at a time. One step at a time. And it was not about me being extraordinary. It was just about me showing up and continuing to do what I loved. And to do it with people I love doing it with. And even at times when some of those people you didn't love, you know, you could definitely on days go, holy moly, this is not what I signed up for. And yet it was exactly what you signed up for and you were going to have to deal with. Mm -hmm. But those were the days that allowed you to remember why the journey was worth taking. Oh, yes. And, you know, it's very difficult being a woman in a man's world. And with that type of business that you had, uh, that you were doing, it was very much a man's world. And so your skill level had to be higher than the person beside you in order to gain the respect that you needed for you to be successful. I We have a building new home construction company, and I'm very involved in that. I have a background in interior design and At one point, my husband passes me the baton and I do all the finishing and I work with all of the trades. And soon as they know that you know what you're doing, they respect you and they love working with you because we have attention to detail and they like that. They kind of like it when you call them out when a light switch is not in the right spot and they have to move it, you know? I remember walking up to one guy and saying, excuse me, but that pipe's on the wrong side of that wall. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, that should be in the back room, not on the selling floor. And he just got this strange look on his face. And he's like, how did you know that? I said, I, I drew these plans. We worked on these for two years. You know, I name a page. I'll tell you what's on <laughs> in those set of drawings. You know, you really owned your work. You owned your work. That's right. And, and then the other thing too, is also honoring the people that you're working with and respecting what they do as well. Yeah. Right. And, and with the massage, it, because of what I knew about structure and function in architecture, I could look at the body in the same way. 
It wasn't technically somebody who could name all the body parts and how it was connected, but I knew from the feel what was functioning, what wasn't, and, and could work with somebody in a very intuitive way there too, to help them to release things that they had been holding, to help them understand they needed to assess how they were working on the time that they weren't with me <laughs> to yes. understand why they were bringing back a repeated pattern in their own body. What awareness could we create for them to take with them so that when that was showing up based on what they were doing, that was setting them into that pattern of repeat, they could start to address what they needed to do. It's that sharing of a piece of awareness with somebody at a time that allows them to see themselves in a way they haven't done. The same thing with the bank code. When you start to understand that you're processing it this way and somebody else is processing it different, all of a sudden it's like, oh, no wonder we weren't making things work functionally for either of us. You know, mm-hmm. you, you have that ability to step back and and see that you can be respectful of somebody and never ever want to do what they were doing or be who they were. Mm-hmm but you could still respect them because they could bring something beautiful to the table that you had no desire to do or be. And their contribution was every bit as valuable as yours. Yes. Yes. Uh, The respect is incredible. Yeah. Susan. Yes. Susan, it's been so wonderful to have you on my show. We've known each other for a little while and I am so pleased that we have finally had this conversation. You're such an interesting person. And you know, you have so many moving parts to your to your world. And I encourage the audience that, uh, you know, branch out with what you're doing, and fall in love with your journey. And take some tips here that Susan has given you today. Thank you. You're welcome. My pleasure. Theme song for the Rhonda Grant show is Sun on the Water, composed and performed by my friend John Park Wheeler. This is Rhonda Grant with the Rhonda Grant show, author of Magical Forces Within, Extraordinary Discoveries in an Ordinary Life, inviting you to look for the magical forces within yourself today and every day. Thanks for tuning in to the Rhonda Grant show with your host, Rhonda Grant. If you would like to find out more information about Rhonda and her upcoming guests and the work that she does, go to her website, rondagrantauthor.com. That's rondagrantauthor.com. Digital Audio Health by Cymatrax.